Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. And today I'm excited to be coming to you from New Delhi. Uh, Kurt is not with us, but I'm thrilled to be with two legendary Indian journalists, Suhasini Haider and Indrani Bhakchi. And I'm excited for our listeners to have a chance to hear their perspective on the most pressing issues of the day in India. And before we dive into it, just a little bit on your background. Suhasini is the deputy resident editor in diplomatic affairs editor at The Hindu, where she covers topics ranging from Indian foreign policy to international diplomacy to global security challenges. Indrani serves as the diplomatic editor of The Times of India, where you cover daily news, India, U.S., China, Pakistan, terrorism, all the foreign policy and national security issues. Um, it's good to kind of turn the tables on the two of you and actually ask you questions for a change. So I appreciate that opportunity. Um, uh, very much. Um, before we dive into the foreign policy, I, I do want to ask you, I mean, uh, first of all, you've, you've both risen to the tops of your field in in journalism and in, and in foreign policy. And I suspect this has not always been an easy path, um, particularly in, in South Asia, where you don't have a lot of um, female journalists covering national security and, and foreign policy. I mean, I, and I don't know, it'd be interesting just to hear from you, you know, how challenging this was and is this what your families wanted you to do um growing up and how how did how did this get going well um and, and no i think my fa- my family wanted me to become a bureaucrat yeah <laughs> i think my parents wanted me to be a lawyer but um but no you're you're right in the sense that maybe uh, women are not traditionally seen in these uh, you know sort of strategic roles covering defense particularly yeah. but actually in in foreign policy the men are becoming the kind of exception there uh, there uh, are actually have, many have... more women covering foreign policy yeah why why is that what do you think's happening it's more fun <laughs> we're better at it we're better at it and uh, yes uh, so no I, uh, I but but yes i mean the challenges were always there i think the first year that i started covering this beat uh, the then national security advisor called my boss and said why do you have a girl covering this beat a girl yeah, yeah. wow and what did he say <laughs> my boss said there's nobody else <laughs> no one's interested in the nitty gritty of diplomacy but, so just so, just yeah. give us you know yeah. for for all the millions of tea leaves listeners listening um you know when someone says no to you you know as you're coming up your career ladder in fact i know you've you've given a talk about this you know it's important for people to to for you for you to hear no but how do you overcome that? I mean, that's a pretty hard thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'll tell you the kind of places where I've mm. faced a no are normally physical challenges. Mm. Um, I, I don't think there is a problem with covering a story until it becomes something like you have to go to the border. Or in one case, I remember uh, having to go into the war in Lebanon and being told by one of my bosses as we went into the meeting where we were assigning who was going to do what, um, don't worry, I'll handle it. And I said, handle what? And he said... I'll take care of it. There is no, there is no question of you going.
morning to cover this. Mm. And it almost became a challenge for me because I did have very young kids and he was absolutely right that I should be considering that as well. Mm. Um, but it almost became sort of now I've got to go. Yeah. So, uh, so I did. Yeah. And I think the only way to answer a no is by actually showing that you can do it. Yeah. Well, uh, we've, uh, you know, there was uh, my first trip to Afghanistan was uh, um, I had to not tell them that I was pregnant. And mm. Uh, mm. otherwise they would have thrown me off the plane. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, these are, uh, I think... Um, I think if if you look at it as a challenge, as Hasni said, it just becomes more fun getting beyond it. Yeah, it's a great attitude. We so, well, listen, we we know how much you've accomplished, so it's um, it's a great, I think, role model for a lot of young people to uh, to follow. I, I, I'm also interested in just what you read each day to stay current, and um, you know, and, and yeah, I was going to ask you about Twitter and, and social media. Um, you know, how do you stay current in this in this field, especially with India, you know, kind of expanding its reach, or not just across South Asia? Well, reading is, I think, a, a, a sort of a continuous activity through the day, because if yeah. you are, if you have to stay current, um, I God bless social media. Is, uh, is that true? So you say God bless social media. Some people would curse social media. Where are you on this? But, you know, the thing is, ultimately, it's uh, uh, whether you can exercise that control. And it's a, it's a question of, uh, even in a conversation, uh, can you... Control yourself, restrain your language, your uh, or you know have a more uh, considered opinion or a more considered response, or do you just lash out? And if you and which do you do? Uh, I don't lash. <laughs> you out. don't lash no. out. No, I think I you also that. have to. You have to master a medium. You know, a yeah. lot of people talk about social media like it's some beast that cannot be controlled. Mm. But it's a question of what do you want from it? Why mm. do you have a Twitter account, for example? I mean, I'll be honest. I treat my Twitter account. Yes, it's nice to get feedback, uh, and it's a very direct form of feedback. But uh, mostly, I would treat my Twitter account as a kind of ticker tape. Mm. You know, something that just keeps me abreast of what yeah. is going on. What are the news agencies saying? What are the news um, um, important journalists like Indrani saying about something? You know, so I, I think you have to clear through a lot of the clutter on social media. But if you can, if you can actually can manage a, it, can be a great yeah, source. It, of news it, it can. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, frankly, if I am just quarrelling with somebody on Twitter, on Twitter, it's just a waste of time. Yeah. Because invariably, that person, I don't know that person. I would never see that person. Yeah. It's just not worth it. But let, let's go back to where if you would have written a story, you know, years ago, you might, someone might write a letter to the editor yeah. back saying, you know, you know still, I really, right? There's a postcard. I got a postcard the other day. <laughs> <laughs> so some people still do. But now you get instantaneous feedback. Yep. And let's be honest, a lot of it um, is pretty ugly stuff. Yeah. And... When you talk about filtering it out, are you able to just kind of ignore that and withstand the barrage? And I'm not saying you get it more than anyone else. We all get it. I get it. Um, I mean, yeah, you just have the, to. It's if white you're in noise. The public space. It's white noise. You have to move it out. You have to look at criticism. If it's criticism that's valid, mm -hmm. if there's a question that's being asked, a clarification that's wanted on your story. You should respond to it because, after all, you are on a public site. But otherwise, if it's just criticism of you or your name or your organization and it doesn't really mean anything, just filter it out. Yeah. So, you know, when you work for the Times of India, you get uh, 
it, it there's a lot more uh, bad stuff <laughs> yeah. that you have to live with <laughs> because um, the first thing that you're told is you're the toilet paper mm. and uh, that's uh, that's that's the that's the start but honestly yeah. uh, on, on twitter as as suhasini said uh, there is criticism and then there is just Noise. rant yeah so you can filter out but the let's rant. let's take maybe one step back away from the tactic of how people use social media to the duress that kind of um, maybe journalism and journalists are under today and the debate about facts and and you know you hear this uh, fake news allegation and you know that I, I just don't know you must be feeling pressure um, in that environment and I don't know how it, it, it does it impact your writing does it impact you know when you when you start to write a story do you think about how people are going to react to this um, publicly does it force you to fact check an extra time I mean what Well, you know, in the olden days, we, if you we you get a story from one source, you cross check with another. Yeah. If you follow the if we follow the old simple rules of journalism, on, I don't think we use trip up on that. And you know, regarding right. fake news, it's called fake news today. Twenty years ago, it was called disinformation. Mm. Uh, before that, so we used to have. There was a time in the eighties, etc., that there were used to be hoardings in this country saying, mm. "Do not uh, fall prey to rumor mongers," which right. were all the same. That right. you're, you know, it's just the medium is different and right. the language is different, but it's all the same. So yeah, I mean, so we do have. You do have to. Yeah, and and you know, it's it's been there since the First World War. Mm. Originally, journalists were. I think there's a German term for uh, fake news that was used mm-hmm. in the First World War. Mm. Um, but the truth is, I mean, I don't want to minimize the kind of atmosphere it creates. Uh, I mean, long before the U.S. president referred to a whole barrage of news agencies and respected news organizations as fake news, uh, we had people in positions of power here referring to news traders, uh, to prostitutes and all yeah. the rest. And uh, while I do agree that you must, you know, brush aside such criticism and, and you know, do what you have to do, uh, fact check whatever you need to do and get your stories out, it creates an atmosphere. We yeah. saw in the U.S. us uh, how journalists were attacked because yeah. it creates that atmosphere that it is possible to just yeah, listen, go after I, journalists. I never thought I'd I'd be living um, in a period where a sitting US president would refer to the press as the enemy, the enemy, of, of, the enemy of the state. I mean, I just never thought I, I would live through yeah. that but that's that's where we are. Well, right? we uh, they don't call us the enemy of the state, but you know when you call us prostitutes it's uh, not yeah. not very far behind. Yeah. Um, maybe shift gears to kind of what it's like to cover Indian foreign policy today, because that that really is an exciting uh, mm-hmm. place uh, to be. Uh, there's so much happening, um, not only in this region, but but broader than that. We just had the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense here, but again, before we get into the specifics, um, what's going on? Where, where's India going from a foreign policy? And, and strategic kind of operating model. Um, you know, there's so much debate. I go to seminar after seminar in the United States about 
is India a regional power? Is it a rising power? Has it is it now a risen power? Is it a global power? You know, like which what what are the ambitions? What's going on? What's the what's the operating model? Well, I I think you you have to see that all policy eventually has to be broken down apart from all the optics. Mm -hmm. And in today's world, I think the need for more foreign policy analysis is simply because the optics is so much more. You will see leaders meeting each other and absolutely nothing is accomplished, but it would look like they were practically getting married. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, uh, and so you need that analysis to say, where's policy actually shifted? Yeah. Uh, and I would say that in the last four years, what I've seen policy shifting as is, um, is quite simply there has has been a little more clarity of purpose when it comes to say things like uh, India is no longer seen as a non-aligned power. They don't uh, adhere to the the concept of non-alignment. When you talk about regional situations, India has kind of brushed off the South Asian identity. It's more looking to the East. It's more looking to its Asian identity, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So there is some clarity there. I think with the United States, there's no question that it is a great relationship. And mm -hmm. it comes from a fundamental, you know, 20 years now of the shift in ties. And uh, yeah. you were a big part of, of uh, you know, cementing those ties. I think it would be difficult uh, to break the foundations that you have helped laid uh, at this point. But I think that there is a huge amount of confusion uh, apart from the fundamentals of the relationship uh, when it comes to exactly what the India-US relationship is. We are yeah. still in that position where we are not allies yeah. and we are not non-allies. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're still figuring out whether it's a duck or... I, a, or, or... I keep hearing... Uh about this phrase strategic autonomy that has come back and I don't know if that's a, that, that, is that the cousin of non-alignment? No, I, I so I there is there is uh, I, I would say a revived talk about strategic autonomy mm. and strategic autonomy I would say is kind of different from non-alignment okay. because uh, it just it just means that you do retain that option of taking mm that independent decision, uh, regardless of the cost, because you have weighed it in your own head and in your own interest, uh, that one that imposes those costs on you mm -hmm. are uh, better than... Uh, so, I mean, in, in, this, in the case of the India-US relationship right now, um, we are wrestling with the S-400. And this is this is the the, the missile, missile defense, defense system, system from, from Russia, Russia right? Uh, and um, I would say that, uh, and any Indian government, not just this one, would go through with it. Mm -hmm. um, we may or may not be able to afford it just now. We may may or may not be able to buy it tomorrow, uh, but uh, we'll definitely go through with Will it. You go through with it because it's needed. Or is it because you don't necessarily so, want to show good point. that you the U.S. told you not to purchase it? Well, good point, and I think the uh, I think at this moment this is much better asking you questions than yeah. you asking me questions. This is very much uh, right. very different. Yeah. but yes, uh, well, uh, at this point, I think S four hundred in its field uh, in its uh, sort of area of uh, has no peer, does not have a 
does not have so a from a computer. technical capability yes. it's important so we do so there is a there is a question that you you buy the S400 you will not be able to touch the F35 the thing is are we going for the F35 i don't think so but so but you but know no. i mean the uh, no but i do i do want to um uh, you know add to that when you come to the S400 that's a whole different issue because you know it's not just uh, this particular purchase with russia but in order to accept even the CAPSA waivers that the U.S. president may or may not give us, he's expected to, but he may not, uh, India would essentially have to accept that it is bringing down its purchases from Russia mm. otherwise. You know, mm. that would be part of that commitment because the U.S. has made it clear. Um, and I think over there, one has been in a conversation with the U.S. Then you have the other issue, which is Iran. Right. And most people, there's been a certain acceptance in India that, oh, well, we did it in 2012, 2013, the last time around. Right. Um, so maybe we can do it again this time. We don't really have to depend on Iranian oil. There are other sources of Iranian oil. Um, but I think that is, to me, uh, a much more fundamental question, because we would be acceding to America, not because the U.S. is a part of some plan like the JCPOA, not because the U.S. is a part of uh, some multilateral negotiation with Iran, and that's why the pressure on Iran is needed, but because the U.S. has decided to unilaterally walk out of that agreement that the U.N. endorsed and is saying, basically, we want to impose costs on Iran for what? Nobody's asking the basic question, what has Iran done? Right. Have they in any way violated the JCPOA? POA agreement? Right. No. So what is the rule of law? What is the international systems that we adhere to? So my, my, my question is with the Russia equation, maybe this is something that's been discussed for a while between India uh, and the US and the US has been and, and Europe as well have been talking about their problems with Russia. But as far as Iran goes, here is a situation where somebody is adhering to the international norms as far as we can tell, but there's been no evidence of otherwise. Uh, IEA has right. certified. Essentially, it's a, it's a deal that the and president the United States didn't like. And exactly. So and we are essentially yeah. saying we are considering bringing yeah. down our oil imports from Iran because the U.S. However, so. however if uh, the point I think is that, yes, the U.S. has walked out and uh, the we and realistically at this point, we have no way of countering this for one very simple reason. The financial system, the global financial system, there is no alternative. There is to Iranian to an, oil. No, to an American system, as in the SWIFT system. Which I see. You, when you were here, yes. yeah. if you remember, yeah. the, when, the, when the U.S. stopped SWIFT payments. Yes. So it's not a question. I think, realistically speaking, you, you know, we could have said, we did say when in 2011 that please don't bomb Libya. Don't do what you're doing in Libya. That R2P does not work. We were even in the Security Council then. I don't think anybody paid even the slightest attention. Mm. It didn't work. Mm. It, people bombed Libya and we all know what happened afterwards. It, but it, even then with Iran, we had the same, we had a similar sort of discussion. The fact remains, and it remains even today, that I would like to have an alternative system to paying for to a system where I can pay for Iranian oil. But I can't because there isn't any. Right. The Europeans, with all the interest at their command, do not have, as of today, 
a separate system. Yeah, but and let, that's the problem. So what we're what we're talking about is the possibility of of sanctions in in two areas. One because of a military sale with Russia, and mm. the other because of continued uh, Indian yeah. purchases of Iranian oil. I want to go back to the Russia one for a second, and I want to again get out of the specific procurement into a larger question, which is. You know, I think the U.S. was hoping we would have displaced Russia as one of your preferred military partners. And I, I know the history. I know they were with you through the, through the Cold War. But if we look at the recent times and the recent history, especially the very recent history, the closeness between Russia and China, Russia uh, in talks with the Taliban, uh, Russia doing kind of illicit things in the U.S. election system, Russia into Ukraine. I could go through the list. And I think we in, in Washington and other start to scratch our head and say, look, we get the historic relationship. But why the why the future? Why the future relationship? So I would say that even without even with if you take Katza away, you cannot also uh, disregard the fact that India has diversified enormously from Russian defense purchases. We would not have been buying $18 billion of, of uh, defense equipment right. from the U.S. Right. Um, one, we continue to need Russia in very many ways. Two, we will not dump Russia. Three, we try and hold on to Russia because if they are, com- we believe it, uh, that they're that they they are with the Chinese not because they really love them, because in the Chinese historical system, the last war that they will fight uh, as China will be with Russia. But that's that apart. We believe they are they are reluctant dates. And um, they're, re- so, they're reluctant dates, maybe to, to block uh, U.S. influence in, the, in this part of the world. That's right. Well, no, I think for more than three. I mean, neither Russia nor China has anywhere else to go but each other. That's kind of sad. No. But may I suggest also <laughs> that it's one thing for the U.S. to put into its national strategic document uh, that it's it, it, it sees both Russia and China as its uh, its problem, you know, and it sees them as adversaries. Uh, and it's there in black and white. But I don't think other countries can, can take such an ambitious position where they say, we're taking on both Russia and China together. Mm-hmm. As far as India is concerned, the bigger threat definitely comes from China. And while they manage it in a bilateral way, uh, Russia is not seen as, an, as a threat to India the way it is seen in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a basic uh, difference of opinion and a difference of, uh, of outlook when it comes to what is your biggest threat. Uh, and as I said, while the U.S. can certainly try to take on both at the same time, uh, I don't think India is about to do yeah. that. Also, India doesn't want to. I mean, I don't think our primary challenge right now is uh, is an external challenge. Our primary challenge uh, is more internal. So we really don't want an external. What do you What do you mean by that? Are you talking about internal economic challenges? We and have development? we have developmental challenges. We have social challenges. You know, you if you if India is an and I call India an aspiring power. Okay, I, that's helpful uh, because it's uh, we're so. 
we go through our ups and downs in the region and i suspect any any large power with the kind of region that we have will do that so it's not that we are a, it, there's no question that we are a regional power we have aspirations to being a global power we cannot be a global power if we cannot address a lot of the developmental challenges let me let me take that one step further let's say and i look at the economic projections yeah. and the incredible growth that india is facing and you will overcome your development yes, challenges in the next Absolutely. decade we 15 will. years yeah. the question i have is what are the what are then the global aspirations because you know going back many years we hear india wants a seat on the un security council but at the same time you just mentioned to me the debate over libya which i remember you know don't get yourself involved in a right to pr- protect and when it comes back to iran india was not a central player in keeping iran from getting a nuclear weapon the the us and the europeans drove that uh, india is not a central player in keeping north korea from not going to its next phase in nuclear weapons so i i i bring these up not as a critique but does india really have the aspirations to be that global player where they have this role and frankly the us would love to share some of these responsibilities with with india but does india really want that okay so uh, now a um we have uh, so there is a question of Uh, desire there is a question of capability mm-hmm. and uh, that the if you look at the asymmetry between india and the us uh, given the fact that we are in different at different stages of development but in different parts of the world mm-hmm. we live in a in a in the in a part of the world where iran is my neighbor's neighbor and will always be my ally no matter how difficult they are and nobody is an easy partner to be uh, with i mean look at india india is not an easy country to live with but um, uh, it's it, it we are there we live, we we have a we have a neighborhood and uh, north korea is a problem for us for very different reasons but north korea is still too far if north korea hits anybody it's not going to be us yeah. so you take the you take the challenges that you can i got it. But yeah, I want and, and I do defer a little bit because uh, and and you will call me uh, out of date when I say this. Um but I'm not sure that all of India goes along with this idea that we want to be a world power at any cost. Mm-hmm. That might be an idea that our leadership has had for the last few years, but I think a bulk of Indians see ourselves very much in a role as a, a leader of the third world. rather than necessarily becoming just one of the big boys at the big high table uh, i think a lot of people are distressed when we see india not speaking up for smaller countries uh, and i i think there are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with the idea that uh, our only alliances are about whether we're with us or russia or, or what we are doing with china and would like to see india in a role that we did see for ourselves say in the 60s and the 70s where we spoke about other powers as well and some of the countries that we're talking about right now when you say iran or libya um i'm not so sure about north korea but we did we did we do still hold a mission there the fact is india has a certain goodwill in the world that uh, bats far higher than india's power mm. uh, and that goodwill has been built over decades of this as i said what many would call an outdated position yeah yeah it's a great it's a really really important point so you know uh, the um bill burns was here um couple of weeks ago former and, deputy yeah, secretary, secretary of state that's right and he said that the difference between the US and China is the system of alliances that 
the U.S. has built, yeah. which China still does not have. Right. And I would say that in a separate, in a in a related way, India has its own set of not maybe not formal alliances, but its own set of equities with a different group of countries. Yeah. I'm not sure we're willing to give those up. I think that I, that's a that's a, again a very good point. I think with the U.S. again, I, I I do think the term natural allies, you know, is one that's sure. been used for a while, um, and I think it's it's right. I mean, it's I'm not sure. No, oh, absolutely. Not, neither, neither side is necessarily looking to be in a formal treaty alliance, um, but it it has worked. And as you said, I think you framed it right over the last twenty years, which is the right, I think, um, kind of starting point and to yeah. to look back. go around the region quickly because there's a lot there's a lot happening uh, in Afghanistan uh, still a lot of challenges but a, a new negotiation with the with the Taliban how big a problem is that from a Delhi perspective it's a, um, well we don't like the Taliban and uh, uh, but in, uh, we recognize that a political solution probably will be the only way to end this war. Um, we also recognize that it's better to have the political solution uh, while the U.S. is still in Afghanistan and has not completely uh, tired itself out and wants out at any cost. That being out at any cost probably would be the worst situation for us. Uh, so, uh, so yes, we will. Uh, but you know, we've had, we've also prepared for and have been preparing for uh, an end game where the Taliban will probably be in a uh, more powerful, legitimately powerful mm. place than it is today. And how we deal with it in the region will sort of test us and uh, to be to expect that we will not be tested uh, in Afghanistan. I think that's yeah. The stuff of dreams. Yeah, no, it's it's challenging. Obviously, now our longest conflict uh, in yes. U.S. history, uh, and so a lot of fatigue there, and, and a lot of lives uh, sacrificed. Uh, just staying in the neighborhood, um, Pakistan, new leader, new opportunities, or same regime, same operating principle, and therefore not much hope for a breakthrough. I get different viewpoints right. on, oh, on this one from good. both of us. So okay. I'll, I'll just put it this way. There, there will be a lot of noise, and there is a certain dynamic to the India-Pakistan relationship, which has been now, unfortunately, our fate for the last so many decades, which is that we talk, something really bad happens, we stop talking, then we wait for a little while, then we start talking again. More or less, you know, sort of almost giving in to anyone who wants to do bad stuff. I mean, terrorism. So the moment somebody wants to derail talks between India and Pakistan, all they have to do is go and, and put a bomb somewhere or kill people. And, mm -hmm. and it, you know, it, it, uh, the talks go away very uh, quickly. Um, but I will also say that no government has come to power in India and no government has come to power in Pakistan without at least making one attempt. I think what you're seeing right now is the Imran Khan government, despite, you know, all the other stuff that we see in terms of the rhetoric from both sides, is going to try very hard to uh, hold the SARC summit mm -hmm. in Pakistan. 
this is, I mean, it's already delayed by two years, um, at least. Uh, and uh, they are going to want that in some way they can hold it. Holding it will mean that Prime Minister Modi has to go to Pakistan. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's too ambitious right now. But if, if it is possible to work that for one day, sometime between now and Indian elections, because our elections are in, in, in uh, expected by May next year, uh, then you might see a small window of opportunity. Nobody thinks anymore that a meeting between two leaders can fix anything. Um, uh, but, you know, the fact is, what is the option? Right. You have well, a different um, no, slightly different in the sense that uh, I'd say a new government in Pakistan, uh, the same principles that operate, that govern relations with India. I think the military is still calling the shots. Well, they, like, yeah. they have to and they will. Yeah. They continue to do that. I don't think there is any change in that. Uh, so it's not like if Imran Khan comes, let's say, I, I don't actually think that we're going to have a SARC summit this year at all, mm. but uh, definitely not before the Indian elections. I, in fact, believe that the Indian government is trying very hard to delegitimize SARC and build uh, a, an alternative, uh, an alternative South Asian regional system without Pakistan. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there is a uh, there is a sense of um, and has been for some time um, a kind of a benign neglect, uh, which is uh, that we will stop you from we will do our utmost to stop you from uh, terror attacks. But everything else, you go your way, I go mine. Mm. And uh, it's, uh, it's if you look at it from 2015, from the Patan Court attack uh, and the mess that uh, surrounded that particular uh, event, uh, I think we, uh, you can see that, you can see not just the phys physically, of course, we can't go anywhere, but uh, uh, you can see that uh, distance being built in. Now, the, depending upon what what is the um, uh, in ultimate intent of both an Indian government and a Pakistani system? Um, we will sort of be, be able to look at how it plays out over the next couple of years. My personal sense would be if this government comes back, um, they might make another stab at, uh, as Sohasini said, at a conversation that maybe lowers temperatures, tells everybody, okay, you know what, we don't hate each other that much. But <laughs> but uh, honestly, beyond that, un on the ground, as she said, you know, if you have uh, uh, people getting beheaded on your borders, uh, on the LOC, not, do you, do you really think there is a public... Uh, uh, sort of support for any kind of an outreach. Yeah. There is. Yeah, I, I do feel over there that public support can be created yeah. and manufactured and uh, outrage can you can be manufactured yeah. as well. And if you just follow what you think your followers want, then that's followership, not leadership. Yeah. Uh, and there is an ambitious leadership out there. Let me ask you one final question and just about the region as, as we look at the kind of India's kind of surrounding countries, Bangladesh, Nepal, Bhutan, uh, Sri Lanka, Maldives. It's incredible competition, obviously, with the with the Chinese. Just give us your assessment. Um, India in the driver's seat. India kind of on its back foot. Um, 
or every so every the, relationship is going to be slightly different. Yeah, every yeah. relationship is going to be slightly different, and uh, every relation and in every relationship, uh, I think we have we have to accept that uh, there will be a Chinese presence. It helps that small country too. You know, we have to understand. I mean, the Chinese, we, they're not. A monster in every respect. I mean, they do provide your roads and bridges much better and faster than we would ever be able to do. But uh, we also, are, uh, there are natural affinities. A, uh, B, there are natural. There's gravity. I mean, if you look at Bhutan and Nepal, there's. It's a question of gravity. It's like if you were. It, it would be defying gravity for Nepal to say that, you know what, I really don't want Indian ports. I'm got, I've got six Chinese ports to go to. Yeah. The nearest port is three and a half thousand kilometers across <laughs> the Tibetan plateau. I would like to see how many Nepalese trucks actually make it. Right. But so there is a, so yes, we are, we have history. We are not, uh, we are prickly neighbors. Um, but, uh, you know, we have, there is, Yes, there is a. Uh, there will be. Uh, it's a. It's a large power, huge. We look at ourselves as not such a great power, but if you look at tiny Nepal or Bhutan, looking at India, they're like, oh my God, you're a boulder sitting on my head. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you have to. We have to be a little more considerate as a as a power. But this is also still the principal focus of Indian foreign policy for the foreseeable future. You, you mean neighborhood first? Na- neighborhood first. Yeah, but we haven't done a very good job of it at mm-hmm. present. And I do think very much that. The question has to be asked, if India is going to be a world power, or if it's even going to be an Asian power, can it really be that power without solid support from its own neighborhood? Or maybe Pakistan you can cut out because that is a different situation altogether. But somewhere there, without being the unquestioned uh, leader or the or the enabler of its own South Asian region, can India really aspire to larger powers? Because all those relationships will be tested. Uh, and I think that is one of the fundamental questions coming out. There's no question that China is now a factor in South Asia, and it wasn't. 20 years ago, the Chinese would normally tell our neighbors, very nice, but you need to deal with India. Um, even if they did ask for any kind of support, China no longer does that. They're mm-hmm. there in every South Asian country and even trying for a foothold in Bhutan. Um, so I think we have to deal with that. But I, th- I think we need to reanalyze just where India's center of gravity is. And if it is in South Asia, then we have to pull South Asia along. Yeah, fascinating. And we will continue to read your analysis each day, your uh, postings on social media. You, you, you really do bring um, so much insights uh, to all of us in, in different parts of, of the world. And I want to thank you for being with us today and for all of our listeners, I encourage you to check out Suhasini and Indrani's regular reporting in the Hindu and the Times of India, uh, respectively. Uh, they are truly great journalists of our time. And I, and I really mean that. You've been um, uh, not only great journalists, but great role models in the, in the profession. Thank you. It means a lot coming yeah. from you. I and think we, you have really been a diplomat you. of our time. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.